These are the confessions of American Christians recovering from American Christianity. This is the world we made. Welcome to The World We Made. I'm here with Pastor Jacob Menzel. And I'm here with Nathan Alberson. Tis I. And ladies and gentlemen, buckle your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. This is part four of our series on homosexuality and how we as Christians should love homosexuals. And today we begin by discussing one little word. We'll be talking with Pastor Tim Bailey about the meaning and application of that one word, which you'd think would be kind of boring. But actually, this word, as you'll see, is packed with drama. So let's get to it. Tim and Nathan and I were discussing 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, not the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Tim said. Now, it's interesting that here it says the effeminate and homosexuals, and the words behind that in Greek are malakoi and are senakoite. Interesting, he says. Huh, I guess that's interesting. Why wouldn't it be interesting? I don't know, Jake. It's all Greek to me. I'll take you to school. <laughs> I had a feeling you might. Let's take the second word first. Our senakoite does not occur anywhere else in ancient Greek that we know of. In fact, it's very likely the Apostle Paul coined the word himself. It's a compound word made up of arson, which means male, and koite, which means bed, which is metonymy for the sexual relationship. Metonymy being a thing that stands for a larger related thing, such as a suit being a word for a businessman. Right, or in this case, a bed being a word for a sexual relationship. So arson and koitoi, male and sexual relations, so like male homosexuality. You're a smart guy. I'm a smart guy. So that's arsenokoite. So that's arsenokoite. But before that comes malakoi. Which is a Greek word for effeminate, soft delicate. As Tim put it, soft men are men who are vain, uh, who wear makeup, who have their shirts unbuttoned to their navel, all right, who have no hair out of place, who have a carefully shorn two-day stubble that always stays at a two-day stubble, who uh, play video games. Soft men are men who can't say no to any of their lusts or desires. And so the way they dress, the way they act, everything about them is unprincipled. It's not firm. Soft as opposed to firm men. Firm men live a life morally that reflects the sex organ God has given them, which is firm. Soft men are men that don't have the firmness that God designed into their physiology. And so Malachi is also condemned, but it's left out of many of our Bibles today. And the reason is nobody wants to think about the fact that even if you're not having sexual intercourse with another man, but you're a soft man, you are just as much condemned by God as if you were betting them. And that's a radical thought to us today because we want to say that we can manifest our gender any way we want. We use gender because it's preference, because it's a political construct, you know. And so you can just go on and on about how, you know, well, I like poetry. Well, we all like poetry. What does that have to do with anything? Every song that you listen to on the radio is poetry. Well, I mean to say I like flutes and I like going to plays and I like to, to have my hair done and I like to get pedicures. And this is a man talking, right? What he's trying to do is say that none of that has any moral content. None, none of it should be judged. That he can not work. He can play video games all day, every day. He can not take on the responsibility 
save a woman, just hook up every now and then, or just look at pornography. And he can do all those things, and there shouldn't be any moral condemnation as long as he doesn't actually have a, a person that he, you know, that he has sex with, right? And so you can be Malachoi and not be Arsenicoite. That's why the Apostle Paul made it into two verses. If you are a soft man, you give in to every lust and desire that you have in your life, you refuse to have moral principles that you abide by, you refuse to have courage, you refuse to take responsibility for other human beings. That's a soft man. And the church is filled with soft men today who feel like they're not violating the scripture's injunctions against homosexuality because they're not betting another man, but they're completely unprincipled, in complete bondage to their own narcissistic desires, their lusts, and they are just as condemnable as men who actually bet other men. Now, what do you think of that? <laughs> Wow, Jake, uh, what do we think of that? He's not wrong. Yeah, but Jake, I've got this thing called Google. Oh, really? Yeah, and it pulled up like 5 billion websites about how the context of 1 Corinthians 6-9 was actually like boy temple prostitution or, you know, just something really specific to the city of Corinth. What do you say to people who make that argument? Um, study Greek. Okay, asked and answered. Listen, it's one of the oldest tricks in the book. You don't like something the Bible says. You come up with a reason. It was only actually meaningful in the context of when it was written. It has no bearing on our lives today, but it did back then. But the Bible says of itself that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So you can believe the Bible when it says that it has universal application, or you can reject the Bible as a bunch of patriarchal, intolerant nonsense. But you can't have it both ways. The Apostle Paul was perfectly capable. The Holy Spirit was perfectly capable of restricting what he was saying to temple prostitution. But he didn't. He used big general words that mean a lot of things because he wanted to mean a lot of things. It's not a code. Let's do Paul, and more importantly, let's do the Holy Spirit the credit of accepting what he says like what he says was probably what he actually meant. Besides, you know what? I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say a lot of those websites were biased. GayChristian101.com is biased? It's possible. Now, if you look back at the history of translation, nearly everybody has always translated that word, Malakoi, as some variation of weak or effeminate. Martin Luther, in his 1524 translation, had it as Weiklinge, which is the German equivalent of saying sissy. The King James translates it as effeminate. The Reina Valera Spanish Bible of 1602 has it as effeminados. Somewhere in the 20th century, the meaning began to be restricted to the passive homosexual partner, or even more specifically to boy prostitutes when people translated it. But, as GayChristian101.com is quick to point out, Malakoy was never traditionally understood to refer exclusively to homosexuality. And they're absolutely right. Thanks, GayChristian101.com. But of course, their point is that the application is much narrower than what we usually think. But they're wrong. It's actually much broader. Which uh, brings us to a bit of a conundrum. Oh yeah? Yeah, I mean, how do we parse this thing? I wouldn't consider myself to be a girly man, but on the other hand, you know, I mean, I don't hunt, I don't fish, I can't fix a car or motorcycle. I've got a piercing. That piercing has an earring. I once dressed in drag for a home movie when I was 12 years old. I've enjoyed cocktails using creme de menthe, creme de cacao, cranberry juice, and other assorted fruits and vegetables. I've enjoyed movies starring Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli. I've also enjoyed Oscar Wilde, Oscar Hammerstein, and Oscar Parties. I can sing the lyrics for every song for every Disney movie ever made. I have a great relationship with my mother, and sometimes I dance like nobody's watching after I have confirmed that they are, in fact, not. Wow. Chuck Norris bows before you, Nathan. You are a paragon of masculine things. And so the question is, are you condemned by that verse? Yeah, I think that's the question. Is that what Tim's trying to say? Well, we asked him just that. 
Well, don't you think that every Christian, when he reads the Bible, is feeling relieved to read a couple of verses that don't condemn him? Every time I open the Bible, I'm constantly assaulted with the holiness of God and with my own sinfulness. I mean, I can be reading obscure narratives in the Old Testament and just see my sin, right? I mean, isn't this your experience with the Bible? It's God's book. And so how do we open God's book and enter into it without seeing our sin, right? Mm-hmm. Right? I agree, yes. Uh, you sure? Granted, yes. Okay, all right, all right. And so... Yeah, you should be worried about being a soft man. I should be worried about being a soft man. I I figure if I condemn something that I don't feel the heat of it condemning me, I'm not going to do a good job condemning it or exhorting against it. I don't think there's ever a meeting in an elders board where you're dealing with the sin of any individual that the elders don't see that sin in themselves. My job as a pastor, your job as, as a Christian, is not to run around trying to find ways of saying, present company accepted all the time. You know, no, I'm not talking about you, Date. I mean, no, no, not you. You're not a soft man. Soft men are all through the church today. They live at home with their parents, even though they're 28. They play video games. They eat. They drink. They have a hard time holding down a job, and they certainly won't take responsibility for a, a woman and her children. But soft men can also be men who are 62, have been married to one woman for their whole life. Their children have left home, and they've decided they're going to become a selfish pig the rest of their life, that they're not going to care for their grandchildren, that they're not going to help their wife with the dishes, that, that at home they're now going to simply give in to their lusts, that they're going to watch TV at night and and just rot away when nobody's there to see him. I mean, you know, there's a lot of godliness that's really just a father not wanting his children to know what he really wants to do in the evening, right? So I'm not going to let you off the hook. Now, when Jake and I do these interviews, it's not all abstract or theoretical for us. So you have to imagine by this time that we were feeling some real tension in the room because it really sounds like Tim maybe kind of is categorically condemning all guys who can't fix cars or who like Broadway shows. So again, we asked him just that. Was he categorically condemning all men who do X, Y, and Z? I don't know how to deal with that question because I've been writing a lot on this subject and every time I write on the subject, of the nature of sexual identity. I always hear the voices of the mockers and the scorners who begin to say, well, just because I don't know how to fix a car, it doesn't make me a soft man. Just because I'm a woman that likes to ride horses doesn't mean I'm a lesbian. Just because, and you know, you, 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 scripture's condemnation and warnings are just eviscerated by all our petty, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I don't know how to answer the question about whether or not you know how to fix a car. I know a lot of really masculine men who properly identify as men properly, not macho, but properly, who know nothing about fixing their cars. But if I notice that there's a man who dresses like little Lord Fauntleroy, who knows nothing about cars, who just loves poetry, and he talks to women as if he's a woman, with the facial expressions and the hand gestures and the the excitement as if he's a girl among girls. And he does not ever have a weight to him. He's a very light, that's why they say light in the loafers, right? He's not a man who on any level of his life, you see the gravitas of masculinity, which is from God and resides in fatherhood, okay? In other words, he doesn't confess 
is sex. Yes, I'm very concerned about that man. The man, whether it's his car, whether it's taking a wife, whether it's podcasts and writing, the, the man takes responsibility for others. And the man who knows how to fix cars should be looking to help the widows of the church fix their cars, right? As Tim said all that, I still wasn't sure how to put it all together in my head. That's when I opened my mouth and saved the day. Oh, is that what that was? I thought so. I, I don't think I can satisfy you on this issue. And, and the reason is we're always trying to... We're trying to avoid actual practical ways where we need to... Yeah, we're trying to, trying to create space for ourselves yeah. to... Joe Sobern used to... And I don't think it was original with Joe, but he used to say that it, the modern... Mor he used to refer to the modern morbid habit of sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal. And so if you guys can get me to deny that there's anything masculine about mechanics and cars, about hunting, you know, and just everything is just what everybody wants it to be. And there's no objective accountability for masculinity and femininity. Scripture is not authoritative. I'm trying to get at this issue of what is masculine and feminine. I have an idea about that. Yeah, go ahead. Let me try it out. Yeah, sure. The thing about hunting, so men are made to protect, to provide, to go out into the world and to do things. Their orientation is to the world, to subdue and conquer. Uh, what's the creation mandate? Fill the earth and subdue it. Women are oriented to the home, to helping the man, and to beautifying the world. So hunting is, by its very nature, something that is for provision. Fixing cars, knowing cars, that's providing, that's building, that's creating. Maybe that's a way to divide and say, yeah, there's something intrinsically masculine about hunting or about cars. Or um, You can be perverse in how you give yourself to them, but that doesn't deny the fact that they're... It's kind of ironic as you talk because... Everything in me is disagreeing with you. Okay. Isn't this weird? <laughs> I'm just trying because to articulate or put... articulating what you think I'm articulating, <laughs> I'm like repulsed by it. <laughs> and let me... But, but it's interesting. Let me explain why. My father cooked probably a third to half the food in our home. The recipes that we use in our home today that come from the home that I grew up in, most of them come from my father and not my mother. Mm -hmm. On our wall in our home growing up, we had paintings that my father did. My father wrote poetry, and so dad was a poet, dad painted, dad cooked, dad was a writer, dad was fastidious about his clothes and his dress, dad grew up in the city, dad knew nothing about cars, and so what was masculine about my father? How did he confess his manhood? The way he went about those things. Uh... <laughs> not even that. You would say. <laughs> I, I'm not even sure that that I would say. I would say that my father confessed his manhood by absolutely being unflinching against pride and greed among evangelical So he fought. He fought. He had courage. And he was a prophet. And he cared for the poor. And he broke the jaw of the wicked. Now, see, we're not dealing with any of these... What I would say in the masculine side are the same hackneyed things as wearing lace and, and frilly dresses in, from Little House on the Prairie, you know, on, on the feminine side. I, I'm very uncomfortable with people that try to establish from Scripture specific actions, okay, because of the infinite variety of individuals. I've heard John Piper and other men trying to say what there is about masculinity and femininity. 
And I keep coming back to the essence, I believe, from Scripture is not minister of interior affairs, minister of exterior affairs, because Proverbs 31 has a huge bunch about external affairs, buying and selling property, stuff like that. I think that what we have is the most obvious statement of scripture is that Adam was the one that God came to after the fall. And God said, have you eaten of the tree I told you not to eat? It's very clear that God asked that of Adam individually as a man. It's very clear that he is responsible for Eve because God goes and deals with Adam after both Adam and Eve have sinned and after Eve has sinned first. So, whether it's painting, whether it's poetry, whether it's writing, whether it's car mechanics, whether it's cooking, whether it's carpentry, whether it's when you leave for church and whether you get there on time or not, whether it's the mortgage, man is responsible. And so, yeah, you can make a case that hunting's always going to be more typically male than female. You can make the case that cooking is always going to be more typically female than male. Well, what was actually behind all my line of questioning, I'm just I'm just thinking about little Nathan, like, wants to be a man kind of thing, and I'm thinking, he just sees this mountain of stuff that he has to repent of, and what do you tell him? You don't tell him to go hunt. What you teach him to do is you teach him to work. That's it. He should sweat. He should learn how deep his stupidity is. He should learn how hard it is to keep working when you're tired. It's something as simple as weeding the garden. It's something as simple as asking him to push his his younger siblings up the hill when they're taking a walk with the baby stroller. So now we imagine a 22-year-old man that's listening to this and wants to repent of being soft when he hears like, well car mechanic da, 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 da. that seems overwhelming but what you're what i actually hear you saying is he just needs to take responsibility probably and by work. getting a job well yeah it may be that he's past the age where he can easily get a job working with his hands he may have a college degree he may already have trained to be a scientist an accountant a marketer and so this could be difficult for a 22 24 26 28 year old man who's for instance writing code for a living I guess I just I want to find that sweet spot between you don't want to throw them into some kind of a legalistic, well, men always hunt and they never cook. and No, I just got done saying I've never felt in the slightest that my father was in any way in danger of having anybody refer to him as gay and his temperament and anything about him. And so I want to make it very clear that men can be real men and have nothing to do with working with their hands for a living, hunting, knowing anything about the mechanics of their car. So what are we talking about? We're talking about men who live firmly. That's the issue. And you say, well, what does it mean to work, to be firm? And I say, uh, play video games a little bit less read facebook a little 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 bit less do instagram a little bit less take fewer pictures selfies i mean come on we all know what it is to be a man and it's to stop being so so vain so self-absorbed so narcissistic so so in bondage to our own desires eat pizza one last night a week think about what you're going to eat maybe think about buying an iceberg lettuce head <laughs> and actually breaking it up and putting on it 
cut up cucumbers and cherry tomatoes you bought. Now, you know, I'm making fun of all this, but I really don't think it's that difficult for each of us to figure out what it is for us to be hard with ourselves, our lusts, our pleasures, our pride, right? I mean, is this really that mysterious? I feel like you're giving me a choice between a guy shooting himself or going out beating his chest and pulling back the arrow on the bow and getting buck, getting 10 point buck. You know, it's like, okay, on the one hand suicide, on the other hand, 10 point buck. Made was written by Nathan Albertson and produced and executive produced by Nathan Albertson and Jacob Menzel. You can find more great content at warhornmedia.com or follow us on social media under at warhornmedia. Media.